rock climbing is not for the faint of heart, is it? You know, at first, it may seem absolutely crazy, right, to scale a 60-foot cliff or, you know, if you're indoor rock climbing, a 60-foot wall of plywood with, with holds. But if you've been rock climbing before, you know that what enables a person to actually take the first step on the wall and to start to climb is not their hands, right? Or their feet. It's the rope and the harness, right? Because now I know that there's free climbers in this world who will do this crazy stuff with no rope and harness, but I'm pretty safe to assume that there's none of those people in this room. And so, uh, or online, um, most of us wouldn't, wouldn't start climbing up the wall or get very high without the rope or the harness. Why? Because we know that we need safety. We need the safety before we start to climb. This is the same reason why we look both ways before we cross the road. It's because we care about safety. It's the same reason why we lock our babies and kids into 16-point harnesses in, in a car seat, right, Andrea and Daniel? It's because we care about safety. And we struggle with the fact that our life isn't always that safe. One author that I read this week put it like this, human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our pow power to manage. Life is tragic. You know, am I the only one who hasn't seen some resonance who has seen some resonance in these words where, you know, especially in 2020, where our sense of safety and control has been shaken. COVID has, has done a number on us in that way, but maybe for you it's even been more than that. Maybe, you know, you've received this in the past few weeks or months, right, a diagnosis from the doctor, or you've gotten into a scary car accident, or you know, you, you, you've been laid off from your job, or something in your life has happened that's shaken you out of this illusion that we have the ability to control our lives and to keep ourselves safe from harm. So my question for us this morning is, what is the rope and the harness of our lives? What is our safety? And we're going to look more closely at Isaiah chapter 40, the first 11 verses. So if you have Bibles in front of you, I'd encourage you to open those up to them because we're going to be going through this kind of verse by verse. If you're home, um, yeah, take out your phone or your Bible and, and, and turn to Isaiah 41 to 11. See, in the season of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, it's a time in the church where we remember that we're awaiting people. We, we are waiting for Christ to come again. We look forward to Christmas, and we look forward to his coming again. And, and the lectionary texts that are leading us through this season are actually opening ourselves up to some of the big aspects of the Christian faith. Last week, uh, we looked at grace, right? Grace as the unmerited, unobligated love of God to us. And this week, we see in Isaiah the prophecy about salvation. Salvation is a big word in the Bible to describe God saving the world. But as I looked into it this week, I was so fascinated by how often that this idea of salvation is paired with safety. 
David talks about this in the Psalms, in one Psalm where his enemies are stomping all over him when he's feeling vulnerable, when he's feeling exposed, and he cries out to God. He says, you, O God, are my king from ages past, bringing salvation to the earth. Or again in Chronicles 16.35 where it says, Save us, O God, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations. Salvation in the Bible is often linked with this idea of safety. And again here in, in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying. He's actually prophesying into the future. He's anticipating the exile for the Israelites and some of the questions that they're going to be wrestling with. You know, how can we trust God? How do we know that he's for us? How do we know that we can be safe with him? And he's prophesying to, to future Israel, encouraging them and comforting them about the salvation of God. These are people who are realizing how fragile life is. They're, they're in a similar boat that we are in today. So what is Isaiah's voice for us? What is our safety what is our harness in life? And so Isaiah gives us three voices in this passage that show us this. First, we hear an announcement, then we hear a warning, and then we hear a gospel. An announcement, a warning, and a gospel. Starting in verse 3, we hear a voice of one calling. And in Hebrew, the word voice is the same as the word for listen, and it has connotations of, of listening, of paying attention to that voice. It's like when we talk to our kids, or kids when your parents talk to you, and they say, listen to me. What that means is, you should eat these words and digest them because your future self would do well to heed all of the wisdom that they are communicating to you right? They're not empty, right? They're full, and it's an announcement. It's an announcement of something that's to come. Listen. What does this voice tell us to listen to? Well, it says, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places, the plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All people will see it together. Now, many of us probably recognize this passage from Handel's Messiah, right? And so, for some of us, maybe the strangeness of these words don't sink, sink down. Um, what is this talking about? Like, is this some catastrophic earthquake that's coming to the world? What, is, what does it mean when making highways in the desert and Mountains being made low, valleys lifted up. What, what, is, what is Isaiah communicating? Well, a person reading this in the time of Isaiah instantly would have been thinking of a procession. Like a parade. A procession for a dignitary or a king. See, there are two symbols at work in this, in this passage, in this voice, right? In verses 3, 4, and 5. The authority of a king and the character of a king. See, in ancient times, when a king would come to a town or a city, they wouldn't just line the streets and welcome this king in. They would actually build a street. <laughs> they would build a new highway fit for the king. They would, they would 
announce this, the entry of this king by making something new. And so this voice is making that announcement. There is a king coming. People reading this passage in the time of Isaiah would have picked up on this instantly. Isaiah does not present us with something that is something we can have an opinion on. Right? It wasn't up for debate whether or not a king would come. But whether or not this king had authority or not. See, when people would hear an announcement like this, they wouldn't discuss whether or not someone important was coming. They would discuss if this is someone who we submit ourselves to, who we align ourselves to. See, Isaiah gives news of God the king coming. The question for the reader is, is this a king who we align our lives after? See, either we say yes to this king or no to the king. There's no middle ground. There's no um, picking and choosing what aspects of God that we like or don't like. What Isaiah is giving us here is is an image of God the king coming. It's an announcement for us to either accept or reject. Either he is all king or no king. So is he our king? The first thing is the authority. This is the authority of the king. But what about, you know, the, the strange language around flattening mountains and, and making rough places smooth? What's that talking about? Well, we all know that under a good coach, a team flourishes, right? If you think about um, times in your life when you've had good coaching or someone wise speaking into your life and mentoring you, a good team leader in your in your Um, in your workplace. Things go well and we have good characters leading us, right? The same is with if there's a bad character, if there's a bad coach, the talent of the team is not is not unleashed. The people are not um, inspired. There's, there's, There's a waste going on. And so what this is saying to us is not just the authority of the king, but the character of the king. What we see here is a God who leaves safety in his wake. Look, he takes deserts, right? Deserts are are normally places of intense vulnerability, of danger, and he puts a road through them. He, He takes valleys and mountains, which are you know, um, in, in biblical times, they're, they're places of intense vulnerability and danger and harm. Like a lot of, of bad, think about the Good Samaritan parable. Um, that was of a man traveling through the mountains and valleys, and it was a place where crime and danger were running rampant. See, this king flattens those places. He takes vulnerability and he makes something safe out of it. Rough places are made smooth. This is an announcement. This first voice is an announcement of the king that's coming. It's a king with authority, and it's a king with character. It reminds me of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings in the third book, The Return of the King, where um, Aragorn finally uh, comes and starts becoming take, taking on this character, and, and someone in the House of Healing says... Um, the, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. See, we, there's, we all know this. We look for 
someone who has authority and someone who has character to lead us. And this is who is presented to us in Isaiah. Second voice is a warning. Voice cries out. And what shall I cry out? All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This voice is moving past an announcement and digging into our human experience. In Isaiah's world, grass is a sign of shortness. Grass has a short lifespan. If anybody knows how hard it is to keep their lawn alive in the summer scorching heat, especially during a water ban in Hamilton, right? It's instantly, almost within days, it turns brown. Grass is here today, gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. It's short. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that all people are like grass. All of our faithfulness is like the flowers in the field. It'll fall. Commentators of the Bible uh, notice two implications with this idea of our faithfulness being like grass. First implication is for the Israelites. Because they're the group of people who have been set apart by God, called to be holy, a people to obey his covenant law, to be a light to the nations. And how has that been going for them? You know, the, the reason why they're in heading off into exile. The reason why Isaiah is prophesying this is because their faithfulness has been fleeting. It's, it's been inconsistent at best. You know, we are often tempted to think that we can earn God's favor in our life by the good things that we do. You know, if I love enough people, if I come to church enough, if, if, if I do the right things, then God will look, look on me with favor. That he will bless me because I've earned it. Isaiah warns us. He says, no, our, our faithfulness is fleeting. It's like grass. It is so easily killed off. But the other group of people, uh, the other implication of this is the Babylonians. See, because they, instead of looking to their, their righteousness, their holiness, pleasing God with their actions, they, they put their trust in, not in their morality, but their military. And they were a world power, and they were going to destroy all people. They were going to bring all people under their, um, their kingdom. They looked inside themselves, and they said, we are strong enough to destroy everyone. And the warning is that their military is also like grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Don't put their trust in what they can do, what they can do together. That will eventually fail too. And so what this voice does is it warns us and it shows us three different people in our world. First, there's, there's people who believe in God but trust their own morality to save them and to save them from the vulnerability in our world, to make us safe in this world. Then there's people who reject the idea of God, but trust in our own ability 
together to overcome vulnerability, together to get past our sense of brokenness or our desire for safety, to work together to bring this about. And, and the warning is for these people too to see that, that our, our faithfulness is fleeting. Then the third group who, who's gospel-believing people who know that we can't trust our own actions but have to rely on Christ. Have to trust Jesus. And this turns us to our third voice, a gospel, which is uh, verse, we look at a verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Some of us may be thinking to ourselves, wait, hold on a second. We have an announcement, right, of this, of this king that has authority, who, who, who leaves righteousness and justice in his wake. And then a warning to us that we can't live with this reality, that we are unfaithful, that our righteousness is fleeting, so how can, can we reconcile this? Won't, won't this God destroy us in his wake too? How can we have good news? It's because of who this third voice points to. See, who is this person in this prophecy? Is it a person? Is it a messenger? The Bible tells us that it's actually God himself. We read in Colossians that um, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ left the safety and security of heaven, of his relationship in the Trinity, and became like us, became a human being, born in, in the vulnerability of a stable in Bethlehem to poor people. Jesus, the king, came. He came to bring good news to his people. But he it, brought it in an upside-down way, not the way that we would expect a king to come. He came with humility. He embraced our vulnerability. He became unsafe in his life. And the way that he ruled as the king showed us, though, his power. Look at what he does. See, Jesus makes rough places smooth, right? He, he came and he healed. He healed crippled people. He healed lepers. He healed blind. He healed. He took the rough places. He made them smooth. He also took the mountains, the self-righteous people, the people who think that they're all high and mighty because of their good works. And what did he do? He humbled them, right? Look at the, the Pharisees, who Jesus humbled with his high view of righteousness, of morality. See, Jesus took the law and he upped it. His, his difficult ethic humbles those who think that they can earn God's salvation. And then, third, thirdly, he brought the lowly and raised them up. Look at how Jesus treats people who are vulnerable, who are poor, who are oppressed, 
who know they're broken, who know they need a Savior, he lifted them up. He forgave sins. He brought them into relationship with, with God. See, he brought his rule, a rule of a good and righteous and just king. But he didn't just do that. He also healed the barrier between us and God. See, Jesus knew that in order to really bring good news to all people, he couldn't just show us his kingdom. He had to make it possible for us to be in his kingdom, to be a part of his rule. And how did he do that? Well, look at this. He brought good news to Zion by going up on a high mountain. Jesus climbed a mountain. He climbed a mountain called Golgotha. Not to be crowned king with the gold gold crown and people yelling and screaming. But he did it alone, crowned with a crown of thorns, enduring separation and vulnerability. When he was hanging on the cross, bringing good news to this world, he lifted his voice up and he shouted. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? So what the cross shows us is that God, not only who brings his rule on earth, but also who embraced our vulnerability, our unfaithfulness. He took our place. And he took the justice of God upon himself. Then he cried out, it is finished. See, the good news for us is that Christ has stood in our place. He's been cast out into the darkness so that we know that we never will be. He's brought salvation. He's brought safety in our lives. It's not the safety that we often think about. It's a safety that goes beyond this world. Safety that goes beyond our situation. It's a safety that means so much for us because as we look around and we see pain and brokenness and vulnerability and loss and sadness in our world, the gut-wrenching vulnerability that each one of us faces on a daily basis, and we ask to ourselves, how can we wait? How can we endure this? How can we know we can look to the cross? People, we can look to the cross and see the power of God bringing about our salvation. So the cross shows us two things. First, that even though we don't know the reasons why God allows suffering to happen in our world, we know that it isn't because he doesn't love us. He went to the cross out of love for us. He endured hell for us. It isn't because he doesn't love us. And it isn't because he hasn't saved us. Because he blew a hole through the grave to bring us from death to life. We may experience hardship and pain and suffering now, but we know that we don't do it alone because Christ has gone there with us and he's come out the other side. And so nothing can separate us from God. We can face anything without despair. And second, as Tim Keller points out, he says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing coming sorrows, the cross, Christianity, empowers us to sit in the midst of sorrows, foreseeing the coming joy. God's salvation allows us to face our sorrows, 
foreseeing a joy that's ours in Christ. Because we taste the coming joy. We're nourished in the coming joy. And we're going to do that together around the table of the King. In just a few moments, it's a table that we taste our salvation. We taste the coming joy. It's a table that he invites us to and he nourishes us in his salvation. It also encourages us to look forward, right? We are awaiting people in Advent. We look forward to a, to a feast that this points to. This is only a foretaste of the day when everything sad becomes untrue. When we feast with Christ in the eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather in this place. Father, we're grateful that um, we can be hearing from you and your word. And Father, we are grateful for the salvation that you have brought to this world through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this salvation would uh, sink into our hearts. May we be empowered through your Holy Spirit to, um, to know our own safety in your loving arms. That nothing can touch us, can really touch us. Father, we, um, we also pray that, that we would be a people who would let this good news change how we enter into other people's suffering and sorrow and loss. Father, help us to sit, to listen, to help, to encourage other people in the good news of Christ and, and out, of, out of the safety of his kingdom. Father, we thank you for this meal that we may taste the goodness of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.